a lot of Aboriginal people that come in, they see a, the hospital as a place where you come and die or you come and you get bad news and then that's you for the rest of your life. And I, I, I just love trying to, just teaching my people about, you know, what we're actually here for, we're here to make you well. Welcome to Pomegranate, a CPD podcast from the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. With NAIDOC week taking place from the 3rd of July, this episode focuses on issues in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's health in Australia. Life expectancy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is a decade lower than that of the non-Indigenous population. Addressing this disparity is one of the key priorities of the Closing the Gap initiative agreed upon by the Council of Australian Governments. Today's speakers discuss where progress has been made and where resources are still lacking. Dr Joshua Francis is a paediatric infectious diseases specialist based at Royal Darwin Hospital. He works as a medical advisor for remote communities in the Northern Territory and also in Timor. He often works alongside Aboriginal health practitioner Shannon Daly, who helps bridge different cultural conceptions of illness. But first, we hear from Associate Professor Noel Heyman, Clinical Director of the Inala Indigenous Health Service in Brisbane. He was the first Aboriginal GP in Queensland and the first Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person to become a Fellow of the Australasian Faculty of Public Health Medicine at the RACP. I've been working in the field of Indigenous health for 20 years now. The major changes, trends that I've seen um, over the years has been improvements in infant mortality. But the one that contrasts that is um, the worsening mortality in middle age. And uh, we see high rates of mortality in Aboriginal people in their 40s and 50s. And this is due to chronic disease, particularly diabetes, ischemic heart disease and chronic kidney disease. And this accounts for about 70% of Indigenous mortality. But it's not all gloom and doom. I think if we all work strongly together, I do believe we can improve Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health significantly. For example, what we've been able to do, we've actually, we've actually got Aboriginal people to attend primary care. But more importantly now, my aim was to integrate specialist care. So, you know, now we have a visiting endocrinologist, we've got a you know, a paediatrician, we've, had a, we've got a cardiologist, we've got, um, you know, registrar from rehabilitation medicine, we've got an ophthalmologist. So private physicians and also um, hospital-based physicians. And the ones that are hospital-based, they come out here, you know, the cardiologist, for example, comes, uh, he does uh, two sessions a month and he does his echocardiograms here and also exercise stress tests. Um, you know, to me, integrating specialist care into a centre of excellence is, to me, is a one-stop shop and Aboriginal people are more likely to attend and we've actually shown that and we've got better outcomes and we've got data on that through continuous quality improvement. And I'm Josh Francis. I'm a paediatric infectious diseases specialist at Royal Darwin Hospital and over the last two and a half years I've had a, a, a more intensive involvement in Indigenous health particularly. So I think as a paediatrician, thinking about the gap, and when we talk about the gap, people are usually talking about the gap in life expectancy, and so the infant mortality rate amongst Indigenous people in Australia has has dropped significantly. The childhood mortality rate has also dropped. 
But uh, the reality of the work that I do is that it's so much of the uh, adult morbidity and mortality that occurs amongst Indigenous people has its roots in in childhood. And so uh, we don't see many children uh, with uh, such severe chronic kidney disease that they require a um, a dialysis or transplant during childhood. Um, But what we do see is we see children with post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis and recurrent urinary tract infections and and, and all these things that sort of set them up then for chronic kidney disease later in life and the the impacts of that. And so uh, there's this uh, huge role to play in trying to look at ways of promoting uh, health in childhood in terms of addressing the gap. Providing effective care to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is sometimes hampered by mutual misunderstanding of cultural concepts of illness and treatment. Aboriginal health worker Shannon Daly. What I love about my job is being able to work with my people. Um, I love teaching them to navigate through the system. I love to be involved in that, making sure my people really understand what's happening with their treatment, with their um, diagnosis, with their admissions. You know, a lot of Aboriginal people that come in, they see the hospital as a place where you come and die or you come and you get bad news and then that's you for the rest of your life. And I, I, I just love trying to, just teaching my people about, you know, what we're actually here for, we're here to make you well. I'll just use the Yulu people as, a, as an example. So the songlines and storylines dictate the world from the beginning, so how it was created to now and how they as a, a people were created and came to be. So um, when they come into hospital, they struggle with new concepts. So we're a very acute setting and we kind of just, we come in, when we see a patient come in, it's like, okay, what can we do to get this patient well? This is what you've got, you know, this is what you need to get to do well. But with the Yulnu, they want to know from the beginning, how did this happen, first of all? Because so there's a lot of spiritual stuff that goes on there. So with any of our Aboriginal mob, there's things like payback, uh, traditional singing, so people putting curses or pointing the bone at each other. So um, when an Aboriginal person comes in here internally, that's what they're thinking of and processing inside is, you know, what have I done wrong? Uh, Has someone pointed the bone at me? How could I be in this state? So for us as healthcare professionals, I think it's really important that we try to acknowledge that and in dealing with Aboriginal patients, there's areas where I fall short as well and that's in the language barrier. My grandparents were stolen generation, so I never grew up um, practising my culture or speaking our language. And in the NT, we've got so much diversity. Like I know with the Yulnu people, there's a region in East Arnhem that, you know, there's 30-something dialects of Yulnu Mata. So, you know, like I, I find myself trying to break down barriers, especially with the, the older staff, around about communicating effectively with Aboriginal people and how do we do that. And sometimes that means using an interpreter. Sometimes that means stepping back and really um, understanding what that person's role is within the family. The other thing is sometimes patients decline using an interpreter. Sometimes it's the way that they've been asked. So say, for example, this is one of the ways that people, I've observed people ask is, um, do you need an interpreter? And, you know, that's not a very good way at asking. So when I speak with patients, I, like, I often talk to them about what they're in for, can you tell me what's, you know, what's going on with you or what's going on with your baby? Tell me in your own words. And if I can work out that there's some sort of skewed information, I'll say, to, oh, wow, that's a lot of information. You know, um, 
how about we have a meeting with the doctors and how about we hear it in your own language, what the doctor has to say about what's going on with you. And most of the time that's a big selling point um, for our mob because then it's like creating that safe space for someone to be able to get true information without feeling... So a lot of our mob feel if they're asked to have an interpreter, like they're dumb or, you know, they're not capable of uh, living in a white man's world, if you like. In one especially challenging episode, Shannon Daly was struggling to build a relationship with a pregnant woman who had been brought to hospital for a second caesarean section. After surgery, the wound from the woman's spinal block became infected and she was readmitted to the ER with meningitis. But the woman's complete needs weren't being heard. So the whole time she's saying to me, you know, I want a traditional healer, I want a traditional healer. Straight away I'm thinking, how am I going to organise this and how am I going to try and sell this to staff? Because that's <laughs> that's the trick at my job every day is I'm, you know, like I'm this you know, like an advocate for my patients because obviously they're not empowered enough to be able to approach someone. Actually, some people are just scared and they don't know how to ask if they're going to be okay. They don't know what this means for them. They don't know if they're dying. So, you know, do they want to talk to a stranger before they die? I don't know. So she absconded, had her head shaved and then she came back for treatment. So straight away the staff were thinking, oh my gosh, you know, she's got postnatal depression or there's something, she's had a psychotic episode when actually she'd just gone off to meet her traditional healer. She had a cleansing ceremony which involved shaving her hair and then returned back to the ward for the rest of her treatment. And this is where the the cultural barriers stand because there's no understanding on concepts of health and well-being for for most cultures. You know, I'll say Aboriginal cultures, but there's other cultures as well that access the hospital that I'm sure have the same issues. I've seen it in mental health, about a diagnosis of depression when it was, wasn't actually really depression. It was um, the way the, the, the patient was acting and about, you know, Aboriginal people, that sometimes in cultural things they look down and they look disengaged and they look sad. In fact, that could be cultural. And um, I suppose it um, stands out, but I mean, to improve Aboriginal health too is about having Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health professionals too because of our knowledge of culture. And that's another important aspect. So a lot of our patients disengage with uh, mental health because of the stigma. And, uh, and at the moment we have an Aboriginal psychiatry registrar and look, people just love him. When I say, look, he's an Aborig- Aboriginal guy, he's a Murray, you know, and um, they say, oh, OK, I'll go and see him. And then they come back and say, oh, that was really great. You know, we had a great talk and they felt very at home. When I first came here, I work in a, in a large community health centre and only 12 Aboriginal people accessed our general practice unit. So I did some focus groups and, it, you know, some feedback from community was, you know, Aboriginal people pick up on body language and they said, oh, look, Noel, we just don't feel welcome in that great big community health centre. And the other about um, women's business, I mean, as an Aboriginal man, I never do pap smears. Um, when I used to work up in the Torres Strait, if any male doctors come out and went to the outer, outer clinic to do pap smears, no women turned up. But if I had a, a female doctor, they did turn up. So what they did up there was actually teach the health workers and nurses to do pap smears. Apart from the medical and cultural challenges, 
Josh Francis says many health issues are related to basic infrastructure needs. The social determinants of health that uh, exist contribute uh, across the board to a whole range of things and so household crowding and poverty and poor nutrition uh, sort of give rise to so much of the disease burden and for me is a massive priority when you're looking at Indigenous health, certainly in our context up here in the Northern Territory. And when I look at some of the Indigenous health issues that that I encounter on a day-to-day basis, it can feel overwhelming. And when you look at the complex intergenerational trauma that uh, exists and contributes to this, it feels even more overwhelming. And with that in the background, to me, it's completely unjustifiable for us to to not put the sort of investment in terms of resources into addressing those health challenges. And, and some of those things are actually quite low-hanging fruit. So we have communities up here in the Northern Territory with quite large populations, up to sort of two and 3,000 people, without a hospital service, without permanent GPs, without uh, 24-7 uh, nurses. And I think it's about um, healthcare providers understanding as well where these patients come from, especially if they've got a chronic condition. So, you know, we've got remote communities, but we've also got outstations, which are, they don't have a store or a shop on them. Like sometimes they're 200 k's outside of the community, which is only a small clinic there. Are they accessible by phone? Maybe yeah. not. Do they have a fridge that they can put their insulin in? Yep. Maybe not. That's right. Do they have access to the sort of foods you tell them they have to eat because of their new diagnosis of diabetes? I mean, maybe not. And so, yeah, that, that awareness is really important, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that unconsciously, you know, we, we get stuck as healthcare providers because we know that if we deliver that full amount of information um, to try and empower that patient, the reality is they go back home and none of that's available. Or, you know, broccoli is like 50 bucks a kilo. Noel Heyman has been conducting research into public health questions specific to his client base around Brisbane. There really isn't much literature on, about compliance uh, about Aboriginal people and medication. And I think that's one thing that's a misconception about Aboriginal people will be non-compliant. I, I don't find that to be true. And, um, and I do things to actually maximise compliance. So I was part of a, a, a polypill trial, and the polypill consisted of four medication, aspirin, uh, a statin and two blood pressure tablets. Um, we found that the people were more adherent to the polypill, they were more likely to take it than uh, four single, single medication. And a few, pe- a, few med- uh, a few patients, when we stopped the trial, said, oh, I still want to go on the polypill, but we didn't have access to the polypill anymore. So I would encourage all physicians to actually do daily dosing or combination drugs and, and try to have less number of medication as possible, and I think that improves compliance too. At the moment, we're doing um, a randomised control trial about antibiotics used in otitis media. In the general population, they've shown that Antibiotics, uh, uh, you don't need them in, in acute otitis media, you just uh, control the pain. But with Aboriginal people, you know, our experience from the Kimberley and um, especially in the NT about runny ears, I mean, a lot of Aboriginal people, if you don't treat with antibiotics, they get perforated drums and their ears just discharge all the time. I mean, is that the same in an urban setting? So we're actually doing that. So some of our kids have been randomised to amoxicillin and uh, hopefully we'll have uh, the data to show that, you know, 
our kids shouldn't be given antibiotics um, with otitis media. And all these projects, research projects, go through a community jury. So we have a community jury here, um, chaired by an older. So that gives community, um, you know, some voice empowerment of uh, what research we do here. And I, I tell you, I've seen, I've been to some community juries, and and researchers that present what research they want to do. It's not a, you know, a lay down mazare where it's just rubber stamped. I mean, even though our jury members, a lot of Malay people, they really come out with some good constructive criticism about the cultural aspects of their research. And that's one of their biggest beefs is about, you know, if you do this research, you know, how, it's, how is it going to influence, you know, um, health outcomes through our community? So it's about translating research into practice. And not only that, you know, our centre's influence policy, you'll find um, coming up the retinal photo is going to be an MBS item number in primary care. I mean, we did the research in that. At our annual diabetic check, we take photos, and we've built up the evidence to say that, um, you know, if you do photos in primary care, you prevent people from going blind. I think, I think a lot of people get frightened with the word culture. There's some um, fear around um, dealing with Aboriginal people, so because of the cultural reasons, because of the um, educational background, because of the language barrier, because of the difference in lifestyles. So um, I think people get really afraid of that. And, as, you know, like I think just to have just a real human approach, I guess, in just um, speaking normally with somebody and, you know, finding out what they're worried about. And realising we've got so much in common. Yeah. You know, you sort of get this idea that there, there is a massive difference and there are things that are definitely different, but uh, there are also, I think, in any conversation, as a doctor, in any conversation with a patient, with their family, it's possible to find some common ground and to, yeah. to make a, a, a human connection. It's one of the privileges of the job, I think. So, you know, I would strongly recommend any person becoming, you know, a trainee to actually try and get that exposure. Not only do those cultural awareness programs, but also exposure. Exposure to me is the best teacher. Many thanks to Noel Heyman, Shannon Daly and Josh Francis for sharing their experiences with us on today's episode. The views expressed are their own and may not represent those of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. For CPD resources on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's health, visit the Pomegranate website at racp.edu.au forward slash pomcast. And please join in the conversation using the hashtag RACPpod or write to us at pomcast at racp.edu.au. Pomegranate comes to you from the College's Learning Support Unit. The program is presented by Camille Merchep, and this episode was produced by Anne Fredrickson and Mick Cavazzini. Next month, we unpack the National Disability Insurance Scheme, a new way of funding disability care that will be rolled out from July. We hope you can join us then. Mm-hmm.